Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. In this episode, we are talking about mental health within Black communities. My name is Emily Mitchell, my pronouns are she, her, and I am the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. With me today, I have Dr. Latoya Wells. Dr. Wells uses she, her pronouns, is a family nurse practitioner, and has a doctor of nursing practice degree from Loyola University of New Orleans. She has over 24 years of nursing and healthcare experience, which also includes nursing and healthcare education at both the undergraduate and graduate level. She holds a full-time leadership and management position with one of the largest insurance carriers in the nation. Dr. Wells is the owner of Wells Legacy Health and Wellness LLC. She is passionate about educating her community. Dr. Wells, thank you so, so much for being here today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And I also have with me today, Monique Bennett. Monique uses she, her pronouns and hails from the University of Central Florida, where she earned her master's in social work and certificate in marriage and family counseling and a bachelor's in psychology. She has several years of experience working with women, children, and families, in addition to our homeless population. She is passionate about helping others overcome barriers and navigate through life's obstacles using solution-focused techniques and motivational interviewing. She is adamant about empowering others so that they are living life and not just surviving. She serves her clients with eyes of compassion, a heart filled with love by providing education, motivation, and emotional support. Monique believes you can make a difference in this world by just helping one person at a time. So Monique, thank you as well for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I do want to mention that Monique is also a um, our victim advocate, one of our crisis counselors at the VSC. I realized while I was reading it that I didn't mention that. So, so that's where uh, Monique is coming from as well. And as just a really brief introduction, February is Black History Month or African American History Month, which is a time to uplift and bring awareness to the history of these communities. Recently, the VSC was actually awarded a 2020 Table Talk grant by the Central Florida Foundation 
To launch M&A podcast series to come out during Black History Month to highlight and uplift conversations about issues affecting Black communities and Black survivors of trauma. In this episode, we are going to be looking at mental health, how external societal factors can affect mental health, barriers that people of color have when seeking resources, how to advocate for oneself, and what mental health providers and health practitioners can do to help support BIPOC and Black survivors. So just to start off this podcast, could you talk a little bit about what mental health can look like within POC communities or people of color communities? Because there's varied backgrounds, um, socioeconomic, you know, ranges, it can look completely different depending on the individual that you're dealing with. You can have the single mother who's raising her children alone and dealing with depression and anxiety. You can have, you know, the teenager who is dealing with different stressors and things of that nature from school or from peers, and they're dealing with depression and peer pressure. Um, So it just varies. It really does vary. Um, As a provider, I've seen, you know, some of the wealthiest Black and African-American patients who are dealing with the stigmas that are placed on them that, you know, they have to pretty much carry the whole society on their shoulders and they crack under pressure, but they don't want anyone to see that. Or you have, you know, the uncle or the husband who's dealing with having to carry the family and battling drug addiction and the different um, mental health issues that come along with it, that. So there's a wide range when we look at the African-American and Black community, um, what we see in terms of mental health. Exactly, because um, a lot of times what's going to happen is because, and we're going to talk about some of the stigmas associated with um, having mental illness in the Black communities um, and people of color, there it's going to be hidden behind something else. So basically, it may not um, look like what we expect depression to look like because, you know, there's probably going to be some self-medication. So someone who um, has excessive drinking or a substance abuse problem may be using that to help them cope with um, what they're really dealing with on the inside. And so depression could look like someone who has a serious drinking problem. They're drinking frequently. Um, Maybe they're smoking a lot of marijuana. Uh, They're using some type of of substance to self-medicate. And also we recently learned that it can look like someone who's angry. So also they're the terms that are often used to express um, mental illness are not the same. So someone may um, express a lot of sadness or saying that they feel hopeless or they're stressed. Right. Right here, I'm saying they're stressed out a lot. So you might hear that and that's not as a strong term and may not gear you towards feeling like someone is dealing with mental health, but because those are the words that are normally expressed by someone of color, um, it could be misinterpreted as something else, but they can be definitely dealing with mental health issues. Thank you so much for both shedding light on that. It kind of reminds me of when I do my trainings on sexual assaults and kind of the coping strategies that survivors of sexual assault use uh, to cope with the trauma. 
So things that you're mentioning, like smoking, drinking, those kinds of things, that's very a common response to trauma. So it makes a lot of sense that that would be, you know, could also be a, a coping mechanism for things like depression, anxiety, I should say, and using mm-hmm. that as coping strategies. Um, I also wanted to kind of bring up external factors that can also affect these communities, right? So are there any external factors such as, you know, political climates, racial trauma, et cetera, that you would like to bring up as it relates to mental health within these communities? You know, I think we're in a time um, where there's been some really hot topics when it comes to politics and racial, racial, racial traumas um, that we've experienced, you know, starting from the summer. And even if we go back to some of the things that have happened within our culture in and of itself, um, with politics and the, you know, the election and the presidency and how all of that took place and everything that came along with that, the racial trauma, um, you know, with witnessing the killings and shootings of presumed innocent um, Black and Brown people. And with that comes a lot. Distrust is one thing. So, you you think you're going to call the police for help for your uncle who is experiencing a mental health crisis and he ends up dead. So then, you know, he's shot or there's excessive force being, you know, applied to him or her, that individual. And so the lack of trust ties into that as well. Some other things is external factors in terms of, um, family members not wanting you to really say what's going on, you know, within our communities, many of us have, and Monique may be able to attest to this, you hear the the statement, what happens in our house stays in our house. So you're not, in a sense, supported when you want to speak out and to seek help. Exactly. Um, those are some, some of the biggest issues with um, people of color reaching out for mental health help. Because the biggest thing is like you're deemed crazy or that um, you're considered to be weak. So because you're not able to endure whatever the battle may be going on emotionally, you're not strong enough. And um, being strong and strength is a big, a big plus for people of color. And so no one wants to be viewed that way. Also the same thing, it's considered like you're telling your business um, whether you're seeking someone of a professional nature, um, that type of stuff is private. And so you don't uh, seek professional help to talk about those type of things. So that is often an issue as an external factor of why um, Black people and people of color will not reach out for, for help just because of the negative connotation behind reaching out for help and I think it's important that we're doing this podcast because it needs to be normalized. Um, And even in research, I've found that that is um, definitely one of the biggest things we need to help um, people in these communities understand. And I'll say it, our people understand that um, feelings of all ranges are normal. And everyone experiences moments of sadness, moments of high stress, and it is okay to talk to somebody about it. It's okay to seek professional help. And, and it's, 
just as important to do that as it is to get medical attention. So just like you would handle your physical well-being, it is important for you to learn to handle your emotional well-being the same way. And because of the lack of doing that, a lot of times um, mental illness can spiral out of control because oftentimes maybe that is when someone is seeking help is when it has went too far. Yeah. They haven't they haven't received the level of care in the, the beginning. So they're not as proactive in taking care of their mental well-being. And so it ends up resulting in other situations occurring, such as now you have a dual problem with, with substance abuse um, and um, usage, which can also lead to other things, such as, you know, probably getting in trouble with the law. Um, now having a criminal record and things of that nature when it when it all stemmed from having some type of emotional issue going on in the very beginning. And so it's important for us to help this not be um, something so negative because it's not. It's just as important as going to get a physical checkup. Right. I agree with you on that, Monique. And, you know, you brought something up um, about strength. You know, when we think about the black man many of those men were raised in homes where little boys don't cry, men don't show their emotion. And so they don't have an outlet. And then when they are experiencing, you know, sadness or depression or anger or fear, um, to express that is seen as weak or less than a man. You know, that's another term that, that we, we hear often in our, our communities. And so they turn to other methods or they try to cover it up and hide it, which is where you see the the substance abuse um, that comes into play. And when you have individuals who are dealing with mental health issues, many times it exhibits or it, it comes out in a form to where it may look like there's something physical going on with them. And many times it can cross over. That I'm... Actually, relates me to my other question, and you know, uh, such great points, and thank you for highlighting all of that. Um, but, but like you were mentioning, it sounds like there's like these ripple effects that mental health um, can kind of start seeping into other parts of someone's life. So, how can can we lean more into you know how mental health can affect physical health? So. I don't know if you've ever watched or experienced someone have an anxiety attack or explaining to you what an anxiety attack feels like. Their heart is racing. They feel like they can't breathe. They feel like something's sitting on their chest. You know, many different things. Um, they experience many symptoms. And so many times we have people coming into the hospital or the emergency room, you know, complain of chest pain shortness of breath, things of that nature. When we run all the tests, nothing's wrong. You know, physically they are okay. It's the anxiety that they're dealing with, but they're having these physical symptoms. Individuals, especially young kids or, you know, teenagers tend to complain of stomach pain or abdominal pain. Um, And many times it's because they're dealing with things mentally and they don't know how to express that. Um, You can have an individual who never had hypertension or high blood pressure, and now all of a sudden they're having high blood pressure, or they're having issues with their heart, um, or their asthma is, you know, 
acting up or, you know, exacerbating because of anxiety or depression and things of that nature. And, and, um, I did a little bit of research and it does show that people of color are more, more likely to identify and describe physical symptoms related to mental health problems. So they're not going to talk a lot about feelings. Um, they're going to talk about body aches and pains when they're talking about depression. So, um, it's going to be very important for, um, us to have a certain level of like cultural competence when you're dealing with people of color so that you're able to accurately identify what is happening or what is going on. Um, And that will help you to be able to ask the right questions when you're assessing someone that comes to you for help. But this is all the more reason why it's important for us to have this discussion because the issue is because we have this barrier related to reaching out for the help that you need, then when research is done, there are not enough studies that can be conducted on those who are um, African-American or people of color from different, you know, from our background. And so when research comes out, the, the numbers are not correlating to what we need because there's not enough research or studies being done. And, and this can change, it really can, because it, it has changed when we put a lot of movements together for breast cancer, because this was a big issue with even women and breast cancer, because a lot of them would reach out at the last minute to get their mammograms done. And so our uh, mortality rate was way higher because it would we would be reaching out for assistance when it was at a, a more later aggressive stage than um, our peers. And uh, once again, we will still have to consider the fact that um, there are other barriers there that um, account for that as well, because if you don't have insurance coverage, if you don't have the financial means to get the help that you need, then that also explains why many are reaching out at a later stage. if you're not, if you don't have a certain education level and you know that you have to work, you're going to be less likely to take time off from work to go see about your mental health well-being because you don't really understand um, the detriment to not doing it, which is why I wanted to look at um, some information about, you know, the, how, just how important it is for us to do, the, do this. And um, when I looked at one of these websites that we're gonna, I'm gonna share with you guys. And they talked about suicide rates because you don't hear much about African-Americans committing suicide, but it's like the third cause for African-Americans, yes. Of death? Mm-hmm. The ages of 15 to 24. So young. Yes, so it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it needs to be addressed and we need to take it seriously. And hopefully today when we talk about some things and those who hear the podcast will join the movements and look at some of these websites um, because there's opportunities on them on how to become a part of it. Um, Because the other barriers that we have is the lack of trust. And that is a very big, big issue with um, trying to break down this initial wall Um, because of past things that have happened um, with um, people of color um, being utilized for research 
being told that they're being helped and not. You know, we have the Tuskegee um, men um, who thought they were receiving treatment and I believe it was for syphilis and they were not. Um, they were actually being studied for progression of the disease and many of them died. And so that is a big deal. <laughs> That's a big deal. Um, also, because when we do, sometimes when we go in and see medical professions who are not of a minority, um, and we express what our needs are and what our concerns are, it is not taken seriously sometimes. And so we don't get the level of care we need. Um, and also being misdiagnosed. And so that in itself can prevent you from going in because you're afraid I, I'm going to tell you this and I'm, I'm going to end up being diagnosed with that and it may not be accurate. Right. When we look at um, the health disparities as it relates to um, Black and African-American um, individuals, um, Black women are at a higher rate of um, death during childbirth than any other uh, woman. Um, as Monique mentioned, in, in regards to breast cancer, the Black women are diagnosed at later stages. And when they, they are diagnosed, the cancer is more aggressive than their uh, other counterparts. And prostate cancer and, and colon cancer in the African-American male, um, the numbers are higher when in terms of the severity of diagnosis, you know, when they are diagnosed and it's all, it has a lot to do with lack of trust or distrust in the healthcare community. And so as provider, as a provider, it's my job and my responsibility to be able to talk to my patients on a level and build that rapport and trust with them to where they are comfortable coming to talk to me. Um, when I am seeing a person who's African-American, my approach with them is going to be a little different because I know I have to come in on their level and, you know, have them comfortable to talk to me or if not, they're not going to open up. They'll give me surface answers and answers the questions that I'm asking. But many times it's those probing questions as a, a healthcare provider that we have to ask to be able to get beyond those barriers or those blocks that they have up because they don't trust us. And it's not the case for everyone, but in a high incidence, it is. And so being able to have that trust to say, okay, Miss, Miss Jones, you, you came in here today complaining of a headache and we've done everything, you know, all the testing, what else is going on? Like what's really going on? Let's have those conversations. And I think there's the PHQ-9, which is the depression screening that should be asked at every visit. Usually it's only two, two of the questions, but I think we need to go even further and ask the full questionnaire to get a better understanding of what's going on with our patient. Because if we're looking at them holistically, it's not just one area that we're, we should be caring for. We need to be looking at physical, mental, spiritual, all of those areas, because that makes up the whole patient. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that we're highlighting a lot of different layers to this that prevent um, and have these barriers that are cultural, 
that are um, historical, those kinds of things, the low SES that you were mentioning as well. I wanted to also lean into a little bit more of the generational and cultural expectations or maybe unspoken rules uh, that may also contribute to some barriers. I wanted to kind of check in with you. Are there any other kind of barriers within that that you wanted to highlight before uh, moving on with the conversation? I did want to make a brief correction because I think I said Tuskegee Airmen, but I meant to say Tuskegee study. Um, So that was the the study of untreated syphilis in African-American males. So I'm going to make sure that I definitely have because some people may want to go up and go out and look up that for themselves. That's the first time I've heard of it too. So thank you for bringing it up. That's a really important. I actually have an uncle who um, was a part of that group. Of um, individuals who were studied, they were supposed to be treated. He's a great, great, many great uncle, but he um, was supposed to be getting treatment for syphilis. And they, as Monique said, they were not treating them um, appropriately. Um, So that kind of hit home. We um, had some conversation a few years back with my grandmother about that and that uncle. So that in and of itself left a bad taste in the mouths of my other uncles, as well as other family members. And to this day, they're very leery of going to get healthcare. And so that's where you get the, the um, old wives tells and the home remedies where, you know, okay, well, if you're depressed, you go and, you know, do this and do that. And then you should be okay. You know, oh, just pray about it. You'll be fine. Well, yes, I agree. Prayer does work. But there are times when you need something other than prayer and you need to seek the help of a professional who can walk you through those steps. And speaking of the generational and cultural expectations, you know, I was raised in a family of strong women and you don't let others see you cry. You don't show, you know, crying is a sign of weakness, so to speak. And Um, you know, other cultures, they feel the same way. And so I had a situation where I was dealing with depression, but I would not acknowledge that I was depressed because doing so was showing a sign of weakness and that I needed help was a sign of weakness. Um, The cultural expectations is that, you know, again, you don't tell what's going on in your household. So it's hard to try and out come out of that and overcome that to actually go and seek help because, you know, if I go and get help, what are my family going to say? You know, what are my friends and my peers going to say? If I tell them that I'm going to see somebody, they're going to say I'm crazy. Yeah. Right. And they've done research and, um, and one study shows that 63% of people of color believe that mental health condition is a sign of personal weakness. Wow. That's more than half. Right. Wow. It comes with so many, when when you're speaking and talking about this, the word that I'm hearing in my mind is like shame. There's this big sense of shame when it comes to mental health. And that just, it's so similar to survivors and victims of abuse and and sexual assault as well. These feelings of shame and what's wrong with me and not wanting to disclose or seek help because of that. And so it's really resonating that that feeling that you're describing. I just I I'm hearing that word. 
why do you think that these barriers and stigmas exist um, when it comes to mental health in, in Black communities? One, I think um, because of the lack of trust and spoken and unspoken expectations that we place on ourselves, having to be the independent Black woman, you know, the strong Black woman, you have to work twice as hard to make sure that you are, are doing a better job or doing your job, that you're crossing, you know, looking over a document five times to make sure you've dotted every I and crossed every T because you don't want to let anyone down. All right. And some of that I think is like, is definitely like generational. It's yep. taught through yep. lineages because, you know, you need to be strong. You need to be able to endure. You need to be able to keep it together. You need to be able to get whatever needs to be done. Um, and so because you're always trying to excel um, and push forth, even even research shows that um, that would be a lot that is reported when they're talking about depression, that they feel like everything is an effort. I'm feeling like you have to work extra hard. Um, some of it is from tra this trauma-induced, just our history. A lot of it is from our past and you're trying, you always feel like you're fighting to overcome some of that stuff. Um, prove yourself. Right. And it can be taxing to your physical and as we're trying to show your emotional well-being, right. um, which um, even now in, in today society with the pandemic, it's just probably making it even worse because some of these things that we're talking about are the norm for those people of color. So you've got a double whammy now because you are also included in the coronavirus pandemic and having to stay home. And so that is weighing with what you all already ex experience, and then everything with the Black Lives Movement. And um, even every time you see or hear about the increase of deaths of Black men, that just makes it more, more heavier, a heavier weight. Right. It's almost as if you're being um, re-victimized all over again whenever you see another incident on mm -hmm. the news or whenever something else comes up that has to deal with the Black Lives Movement and, you know, the unfair treatment of someone else that's a Black, you know, or African-American. It's almost as if you're, you're experiencing that same trauma over and over. We just got to a point to where we felt like we could breathe and then something else happens and now our breath is caught in our throat again and the anxiety starts again, the depression starts, the conflict is happening in the homes. You know, you have people who their escape was getting away, going to work or, you know, going to school. And now schools are shut down or were shut down. Everybody was at home. So you had that high incidence of domestic abuse as well as um, child abuse in the beginning of the pandemic because that outlet, that outlet was no longer there. And you may have been able to go to work and talk to your girlfriend, you know, confiding your girlfriend. Well, you don't have that anymore. And so things really shifted and changed when it came to mental health for everyone, but it was just highlighted and magnified in the Black community. You hit the nail on the head, really, the idea of re-victimization and having to, um, and also kind of talking about these coping strategies that you mentioned earlier about utilizing things maybe like self-harm or drugs and alcohol, those kinds of things, when 
what we usually did before was maybe go out and see our friends or um, go to church or go to a community gathering. And since that's not there, it makes sense that there's other unhealthy coping strategies that are coming into play. And it makes sense that communities that are already at risk for this um, are experiencing it even more. That being said, you know, what can mental health providers do to help make people of color or BIPOC individuals feel safe enough to reach out to resources? Definitely do some research. Read up on um, and become a little more culturally competent. Learning what, like how we shared about what it looks like. Um, how would they describe when a client comes in and they talk about it? Um, be aware of um, what's their social norms. Um, what is life like for them? What are they experiencing? And have ways to make them feel comfortable. Let them know that you're an ally. Really not having any preconceived notions. Treating them like they're, that's the first time, the first client you've ever met. Hearing them out and actually taking the opportunity to try to assess what that client is saying. The things that they may not be saying. Reading their social cues, facial expressions. Um, that's what I would say. Monique, I think you just covered it all. Um, several things that I was gonna um, say, <laughs> you you pretty much covered it. I, I just I would just say, create an environment to where it's conducive to um, being able to get that person to trust you, um, where they feel comfortable talking to you, and know that it's not gonna be on the first visit most of the time. It's gonna take time. So having patience to talk with that that individual if you're a provider to where you know your office is you're in and out every 15 minutes saying patients that may not be what is needed so being able to adjust and adapt to the needs of the the black and african-american patient because their needs are completely different um based on what we've already discussed and and i would say that it's even if you are not familiar have some resources right to be able to send them to someone you know can and um and when you do that make sure it is it's the same level of care that you would offer so you want to give them same good quality refer them to good quality resources um because even if if they have to come back that builds that level of trust um with that individual so um I, I would say that's one of, one of the places to start because we definitely need to make sure there's a connection um, between those who are not people of color. Um, and so that to me would help when you're creating that environment and helping to build trust and letting them know that you are concerned. Definitely. Yeah, I think that uh, with these kinds of platforms too. And, and I'm really just so happy that we're having this conversation because I think just uplifting and bringing awareness to things like um, these barriers that uh, BIPOC individuals face when it comes to reaching out for services and also understanding the cultural background of, you know, the history of you know, it makes absolute sense when you bring up that study, Monique, it's, it's just so heart-wrenching 
and shocking to hear it, but it's very important that we understand this historical thing that happened and why that there, this could lead to a lack of trust within health and mental health um, providers, because it, I mean, we have to look at that. We have to understand that and, and just uplifting this education surrounding it, I think is such an important thing to do. And, and I'm just really, really glad and grateful to have you both on the podcast talking about it. Um, another kind of point that we wanted to cover on this episode is advocating for the self. So clients that are looking to advocate for their self. So what does advocating for the self look like and how can a person of color advocate for themselves as it comes to mental health and how can they advocate for their family? So I'm a big proponent of advocating for yourself, but you first have to know, you first have to know what you need um, mm-hmm. and then have the, the resources to reach out to get the help specifically for what you need. If I have a person that's looking to lose weight, I can't have them go to, you know, uh, all you can eat restaurant because that's not <laughs> where they have to go. But being able to identify what the needs are, right? Having clear understanding of what the needs are, um, yeah. having expectations for what you want to receive and being okay to speak up for that. Yes. And when you feel that you're not getting the care and services that you should be, that you are that you are empowered to speak out about that. Yes. So I I definitely agree. And and I would say um, in a nutshell, it means educating yourself, um, doing some research. The same thing that we're saying about providers um, educating themselves. We have to do the same thing because education does um, breed uh, power because it, it, it's knowledge and it helps you get gain more understanding and you will be more um, confident to be able to speak up for yourself because you're knowledgeable about what it is that you need and and don't be afraid to ask questions right so um you know, one thing is ask the provider, like if you're going to receive services, ask them, have they ever treated um, people of color before? Have they received training um, in cultural competencies? You know, what what kind of um, policies do they have in place? I know at our organization, we're doing like an anti-racism training with all the staff, um, because this is important to us that we're, we're breaking these barriers and um, learning how to work and serve the community um, without um, color being an issue. And not just color, you know, for any population, it's important, LGBTQ community, everyone that um, would be considered a minority, we want them to have um, equal opportunity and rights and quality service. So, it's important for them to ask those questions and even in interviewing and asking these questions of, of a provider, their responses will help you understand if that is the environment you want to receive your care in. Right. How somebody answers those questions, if they're offended because you're asking them if they've ever treated uh, people of color, um, do they do trainings, do they have any cultural uh, competency? Are they willing to incorporate your beliefs in your service? I mean, I know with clients, when we do an assessment, we're asking them the things that are important to them 
that in, that in, um, encourages them and supports them to have healthy emotional feelings. And so I'm going to use that to help motivate you. I'm not going to use what I feel like motivates me. I'm going to use what motivates you. And so oftentimes for people of color, faith is important to them. And so, you, you know, um, their ministry may have more weight and influence than a, a mental health profession, professional will. So if they come to you, try using some faith-based scriptures. That may not be your thing, but encourage them with their faith. Encourage them to pray if that works with them. Encourage them to, to have a balance. Correct. Um, and that may encourage them to come back, you know, because you're you're taking their emotions and what their joys are into consideration and it, and they can even see your efforts. Right. And so that once again builds that trust that we're talking about and it shows that you care. So I'm not just a number and I'm not just a payment. Um, so that's important. And with, with healthcare. I think it's very important that you make a connection with your therapist. Um, and I think even when we did our training and talked about having the same communication style, um, because that brings a release in the environment and a person feels calm and not stressed and they don't feel like you're judging them. Because when it comes to emotions, um, you need to be in an environment where you don't feel like you're being judged and you're able to alleviate freely the stresses that are making you feel what made you come in in the first place. Right. Some of the things that I um, thought of as you were speaking, Monique, is one thing I think even going back to the African-American families, having ways to teach the fostering of um, positive communication, being able to communicate effectively and positive, you know, and speaking your mind and, and your feelings is a, a very important, very, very important. Another thing that I tell my patients is write down the questions that you want to ask. Take some time before your appointment to write down those questions that you want to ask your provider. So that way, when you go in there, you know, typically you go in, you have these questions in your head and you're going to ask them, but they, the provider comes in, they do their physical assessment. Okay, this is what's going on. Here's the prescription and they're out the door. Well, you're paying them for a service. And so if you have 15 questions that you want to ask, they should take time to ask those questions, to answer those questions for you. Another one is look at ratings and reviews of the providers that you're going to see. What are their experience? What what have other Black or African American or people people of color? What have been their experience? Because if this provider has horrible you know ratings with people of color, then you don't want to go to that person, right? So doing that research and educating yourself ahead of time will be very beneficial. Yeah, I have a few questions that they can ask um, when they go in to um, see a provider. Did my provider communicate effectively with me? Is the provider communicating in a way that you understand what they're saying? Because um, we talked about the differences in cultures. People relate information differently. Mm -hmm. People of color may not use like such big, large terminology words. Um, just make it simplistic. Make it so that they understand right. what you're saying. Don't make it complicated. Right. You have to break um, it down in language in which they can understand. Mm -hmm. 
is my provider willing to integrate my beliefs, my practices, my identity and cultural background into my treatment? Did I feel I was treated with respect and dignity? Um, do I feel like my provider understands and relates well with me? So these are some questions that can help you decide whether this is where you want to go and receive that service or not. And it's okay to say, I don't want that. I don't want to go elsewhere. Because when it comes to mental health, like I said, you need to have a connection. You need to um, feel like you're receiving the best care. And if you don't, don't, don't pay for it. It's that simple. Yeah, absolutely. I love everything and, and that you're saying, and I love all the examples that you're bringing up and the questions to ask. And as always, you know, you have every right to ask these questions. <laughs> you're receiving a service, right? And so I want to uplift that and, and highlight that. Yes, you have absolutely every right to walk away um, if you're not feeling safe, right? Your safety is really important. And asking these questions, you have every right to do so. So um, I really appreciate you both kind of bringing up this topic about, you know, advocating for yourself. And I wanted to also, we, we talked a little bit about how a lot of times there's kind of this reactive instead of proactive approach when it comes to mental health and physical health. And so how can we um, advocate for our mental health in a proactive rather than a reactive way? I think it's, it's the same as like we were talking about before. Um, don't be afraid to read some articles on mental health. Don't, um, if there's a podcast or things to listen to, um, that helps you become more aware of what it looks like in our culture. Because like we talked about, you're, we might not necessarily describe depression the same way. Um, so that you're aware if you begin to feel some of those things and they're lasting longer than a week or a month. Um, if you're struggling, you know how to go and talk to somebody. Um, don't be afraid to talk to your physician. Um, when I did look at research, um, they were talking about how the importance would be partnering with the places that um, most people of color, color feel comfortable talking with. So um, it would be good to partner with the church to allow them to have resources available so that when um, you know, their congregants are coming in and they're expressing some of these things, they can say, you know, maybe you should go and talk to this person or, or call that person or even the websites and um, let them go on and read some of the things to see if they fit that description for themselves. Um, that would be more of a proactive way, um, not waiting to the point where you just can't manage anymore or you're not attending service anymore. You know, if you were somebody who attended regularly and now you're not going, usually it's something um, wrong if, that, if, that, if that's a viable part of your life. So I think that those are good things to consider. Yeah, I, I love that you brought up kind of the signs that you might start seeing as far as, oh, I'm, or maybe within like your own circle, you mm -hmm. know, friends or family too, kind of starting to see these signs of, hey, you know, we used to, you know, I, I noticed that you would go to, for example, during COVID, not to date this podcast, but maybe like you used to go to the online um, support group and now you're not going or those kinds of things. Those are kind of signs. Yeah, becoming withdrawn, less right. talkative. Right. And I think having a support system um, and accountability partners mm -hmm. is important, right? Those friends and family members who are not afraid to call you out mm -hmm. when they see you going down that rabbit hole. Um, 
I, and and I go I speak for myself. I had a friend who called me out. You know, Doctor Wells, you are depressed, and I was yeah, no, I'm not depressed. I take care of depressed people every day, just about. But I was, and she was not afraid to call me out on that. And so, being, having a, a support group, right, um, as providers and 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 healthcare practitioners and mental health practitioners, going to the places where we can make the biggest impact. We may not be able to make the greatest impact in a cl- in the clinical setting, going into the community, the hair salons, well, before COVID, you know, the hair <laughs> salons, the barber shops, the sports leagues where the, you know, the moms and the dads are with their kids on Saturdays, watching their, you know, little league games, what have you. Those are the places where we need to go and be within the community, providing the resources, providing them with the symptoms, what does it look like to be depressed? You know, what does it look like to have anxiety? Um, if we can educate them and provide them with these resources to know what to look for, then that, you know, coach could look at this kid and say, you know, Sam isn't acting himself lately. I don't know what's going on, but something is wrong, you know, and being able to have the courage and the authority to go and talk to that parent about this kid. So we don't have him ending up being a statistic, you know, and committing suicide or trying to harm himself and things of that nature. Since, you know, you began working in your respective fields, have you seen any changes as it pertains to stigmatizing mental health in uh, people of color communities? I can say I have. Um, I've been in a nursing field for over 20 years, 24 years, and when I first started, you know, Lakeside was the crazy house. You know, you don't want to go over there. You, know, you don't want to end up there. You're going to be crazy, be considered crazy. But now I see that there is um, a lot of open dialogue about mental health. You know, sis, how you doing today? Check, you know, check in. You know, we're checking on each other. Social media has played a major part in that and helping people do self checks. I'm a part of several groups and, you know, hey sis, how you doing today? Do a purple heart, a blue heart, a pink heart, if you're, you know, you're okay today, I'm great. The pink heart, the yellow heart, the blue heart, you know, I'm not okay. And, and it's okay to not be okay. You know, those outlets and those um, groups that kind of help us stay accountable and know that when I'm having a bad day, it's okay. And, and, and someone has my back. I've seen a major change in that. Whereas before, you wouldn't talk about that. You 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 silently struggle with depression and figure out how to put on the happy face and how to, you know you're all made up. Your hair is done to the nines. You have on mm-hmm. your makeup and your lashes and you're dressed, you know, to the T. But yet behind that smile, you're crumbling and falling apart. Whereas now we're able to pull off the mask and be more transparent. So I've definitely seen a change even in the education of healthcare providers, you know? Yeah, definitely. Even with um, women, for sure. Oh yeah. Black women, it's, it's, um, they've done research and studies have shown that women are more likely to be able to identify signs of mental health issues and um, are also able to discuss and express um, positive coping skills. Oh yeah. Um, so that is a big change, um, from like some of the stigmas that we were talking about and the things that you don't do, like what stays in this house, um, 
what is said in this house stays in this house. And um, even as I did um, research, seeing that there are organizations out here for Black men, um, and um, I'll talk more about those as well, but they have Black Men Heal. Um, so that is targeted towards Black men specifically, um, being supported with um, a lot of the traumas related from the things that we've discussed that have been going on. Um, and I'm giving them a support group and letting them know that um, they should not be ashamed. And I, I would like to get a chance to read something off this website that I thought was beautiful when I read it. It says, I am no less a man because, because I fear. I am no less a man because of my mental health struggles. I am no less a man because I only get to decide what it means for me to be a man. I think that is great. (laughs) I love that. And there's such an area of opportunity when it comes to the African-American man. And that just, if you could see my heart, it just kind of swelled up with like excitement because that's such an amazing statement. Yeah. And I think this is what needs to be done. Like we need to change the definition of um, what receiving mental health is, just like we changed what it means to get a mammogram. It's what we need to do for mental health. Um, This is not a shame badge. This is not anything you should be embarrassed about. Everyone is experiencing emotions and they can be overwhelming. Your mind is powerful. Yeah, it's okay for men to experience feelings and to express Mm -hmm. their feelings. You know, I'm so grateful. God gave me a man who is not afraid to get in touch with. And Monique, you can, you know, my husband, Um, he's a quarterback just like I am. And, you know, I love to see that when men are not afraid to cry and to show their emotion. It's amazing. I love this. I, I love seeing kind of the the positive change kind of happening right now. And I, I love you talking about those different hearts, those different heart colors. I think that's such a great way to check in really quickly. If you're not feeling comfortable saying words like I'm feeling depressed, you can just, if you feel more comfortable just sharing a heart that's blue. I think that's such a great way to kind of overcome that barrier. Yeah. Um, and of course that was such a moving quote, Monique, thank you for, for reading that. Um, you, you were mentioning, you know, some resources. So I'd like to lean more into that. So do you have any other, you know, mental health resources available specifically for people of color or black communities or BIPOC or maybe um, anything else you'd like to uplift as far as uh, resources for people to reach out to? Absolutely. You know, I am, um, of course, I'm going to um, brag on us, the Victim Service Center. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> yes. And um, we have mental health care at our organization. And we also have our Black Survivor Support Group. Um, and, you know, I would say um, go online. You can Google us <laughs> on your Victim Service Center. And you're able to call us up and we can schedule an appointment. You can ask us questions. We're happy to answer any questions you have to get you started. Um, Also, I found this website to be amazing. And I encourage you to go there because there is a list of um, organizations that are geared towards people of color on this website. And they are beautiful. That's where I found the one for um, uh, Black Man Hill. It is the um, National Alliance on Mental Health website. So it's NAMI, N-A-M-I.org. 
And if you Google that, uh, go to that website, there is so many organizations. They have therapy for black girls. There are podcasts on there as well, where they are making it normal to just uh, talk about mental health and um, self-care on that website. There's articles that are linked from other magazines that talk about it. So we talked about educating yourself. Some of these are people of color magazines, so they're geared towards that community. The other one that I thought was great was um, Brother, You're On My Mind. They have a toolkit that is geared towards talking to um, Black men about depression and those mind struggles. So there, these are just some that I'm, uh, that like took me by surprise when I went through this same website. And then there's another one that is called BEAM. So this is Black Emotional and Mental Health. So this organization is a collective of advocates, yoga teachers, artists, therapists, lawyers, religious leaders, teachers, psychologists, and activists committed to the emotional and mental health and healing of the Black community. So that that one website that I told you in the beginning has all these websites on it. And on there are the links for resources that um, you can put in for therapy. If you are interested in being a provider, there is a link for you to go there and um, tell them that you want to be a provider. Um, And then there are some movements on some of the bottoms of them where you can join the movement on how to heal, help heal the communities um, and of people of color. So I hope that these resources have helped you because they encourage me. (laughs) That's incredible that I love that there's so many different specific individualized resources out there. And thank you so much. I'm definitely going to put that in the description at the bottom. So if anyone's listening, um, I will put in NAMI.org. That's fantastic. I had no idea. That's amazing. Yes. I looked at that one and I was just amazed at the resources that were available. Yes. I I went to that website and was like just overwhelmed. Yes. I was very excited. And um, some of those resources and websites also like they give um, some free free therapy sessions. So, you know, cause we've talked about, um, with people of color, a lot of their, um, reaching out for help. They do a lot of visits to, um, the emergency room. There's not a lot of consistent primary care, right. um, that because goes many on. Them, yeah. Many of them lack healthcare insurance and mm-hmm. many of the times that's required to get some of these services. So to have those free services that are available to them is amazing. And many times, once you get them in for the free services, the hope is that they're able to then get them hooked up with insurance. I know the Center for um, the Coalition of the Homeless and um, Community Health Centers is another resource for individuals who don't have medical insurance, but can get in and get the medical insurance and then they can branch them out into the mental health services that they need as well. Yes. So I would definitely like to see um, more in the future um, some services for you that are not implemented when you're like at the extreme need. Right. When things are not so severe, because there are a lot of free service and low cost services when you have um, issues that are becoming like terminal, you know, but I want us to have proactive. And that's the key, proactive um, versus reactive. Things, yes, so where people can come in 
and get assessed and they don't have to be in a crisis state. I'm concerned. I need a, I need a consultation. That is what I would love to see. I love that. Amazing. Um, And I think that that is honestly a wonderful place to kind of sign off. But before we do, I wanted to give the floor one more time. If there's anything else you would like to add to uh, the discussion that we may have missed, or if anything you'd like to say specifically to anyone who's listening, who might be part of these communities who is struggling with mental health currently. So I want to say sister or sis, as we call her. It's okay to reach out for help. It doesn't make your peer weak. There's strength in reaching out for help and knowing that there's someone there that has your hand, that has your back, who's right there alongside you, um, wishing you well, praying for you, pushing you, knowing that you're going to be okay. Brother, as the quote was said earlier, you're no less of a man because you have feelings and you want to express them. Reach out for help. There's strength in numbers. There's people to help you, people that you can trust. And we're right here waiting for you with open arms. 100%. I totally piggyback off of all of that. I don't think I could say anything better than that. I definitely would love to say, sis, I want your insides to be as free and beautiful as you keep your outside. Yes. Because one thing about um, people of color and women, they love to look good, but I want you to feel good emotionally and health-wise, just as good as you keep your outside looking good. I love that. I just so so beautifully put from both you, uh, Monique, and you, Dr. Wells. So thank you so much. And I want to thank the listener for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And thank you so, so much, Dr. Walls and Monique, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. (laughs) 